0: Section twelve of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. He honoured me with his company at dinner on the sixteenth of October at my lodgings in Old Bond-street with Sir Joshua Reynolds, Mr. Garrick, Dr. Goldsmith, Mr. Murphy, Mr. Bickerstaff. Footnote. To this wretched being himself by his own misconduct lashed out of human society the stage was indebted for several very pure and pleasing entertainments among them love in a village the maid of the mill forster's goldsmith when says mrs Piozzi, anecdotes mr bickerstaff's flight confirmed the report of his guilt and my husband said in answer to johnson's astonishment that he had long been a suspected man. By those who look close to the ground, dirt will be seen, sir, was his lofty reply. I hope I see things from a greater distance. In the Garrick correspondence is a piteous letter in bad French, written from saint Malo by Bigstaff to Garrick, endorsed by Garrick from that poor wretch Bigstaff i could not answer it with sir joshua reynolds mr garrick dr goldsmith mr murphy mr Bickerstaff, and mr thomas davies garrick played round him with a fond vivacity taking hold of the breasts of his coat and looking up in his face with a lively archness complimented him on the good health which he seemed then to enjoy while the sage shaking his head beheld him with a gentle complacency one of the company not being come at the appointed hour i proposed as usual upon such occasions to order dinner to be served adding ought six people to be kept waiting for one why yes answered johnson with a delicate humanity if the one will suffer more by your sitting down than the six will do by waiting. Goldsmith, to divert the tedious minutes, strutted about bragging of his dress, and, I believe, was seriously vain of it, for his mind was wonderfully prone to such impressions. Footnote. Boswell, only a couple of years before he published The Life of Johnson, in fact, while he was writing it, had written to Temple, I was the great man, as we used to say, at the late drawing-room, in a suit of imperial blue lined with rose-coloured silk, and ornamented with rich gold-wrought buttons. Letters of Boswell in a footnote. Come, come, said Garrick, talk no more of that. You were perhaps the worst, eh? Goldsmith was eagerly attempting to interrupt him when Garrick went on, laughing ironically nay, no, you will always look like a gentleman, but I am talking of being well or ill dressed. Miss Reynolds in her recollections quotes Boswell, says, One day at Sir Joshua Reynolds's, Goldsmith was relating with great indignation an insult he had just received from some gentleman he had accidentally met. The fellow, he said, took me for a tailor which all the company either laughed aloud or showed they suppressed a the laugh End of Well let me tell you, said Goldsmith when my tailor brought home my bloom-coloured coat he said Sir, I have a favour to beg of you when anybody asks you who made your clothes be pleased to mention John Philby at the Harrow in Water Lane Johnson My sir, that was because he knew the strange colour would attract crowds to gaze at it and thus they might hear of him and see how well he could make a coat even of so absurd a colour footnote in priors goldsmith is given philby's bill for a suit of clothes sent to goldsmith this very day october the sixteenth to making a half-dress suit of ratine lined with satin twelve pounds twelve shillings to a pair of silk stocking breeches Two pounds five shillings to a pair of bloom coloured ditto, one pounds four and sixpence. Nothing is said in this bill of the colour of the coat. It is the breeches that are bloom coloured. The tailor's name was William, not John Philby Ibid. Goldsmith in his Life of Nash had said Dress has a mechanical influence upon the mind, and we naturally are awed into respect and esteem at the elegance of those whom even our reason would teach us to contemn. He seemed early sensible of human weakness in this respect. He brought a person genteelly dressed to every assembly. Cunningham's Goldsmith's Works. End footnote. After dinner our conversation first turned upon Pope. Johnson said his characters of men were admirably drawn those of women not so well Footnote. the characters of men and women are the product of diligent speculation about human life much labour has been bestowed upon them and pope very seldom laboured in vain the characters of men however are written with more if not with deeper thought and exhibit many passages exquisitely beautiful. In the women's part are some defects. Johnson's works. In footnote. He repeated to us in his forcible, melodious manner the concluding lines of the Dunciat. Footnote. Mr. Langton informed me that he once related to Johnson on the authority of Spence, that Pope himself admired those lines so much that when he repeated them, his voice faltered, and well it might, sir," said Johnson, "for they are noble lines." J. Boswell, Jr. End footnote. While he was talking loudly in praise of those lines, one of the company ventured to say, "Too fine for such a poem, a poem on what?" Footnote. We have here an instance of that reserve which Boswell in his dedication to Sir Joshua Reynolds, says that he has practised. In one particular, he had found the world to be a great fool, and I have therefore, as he writes, in this work, been more reserved. Yet the reserve is slight enough. Everyone guesses that one of the company was Boswell. End of Johnson, with a disdainful look, why on dunces it was worth while being a dunce then ah sir hadst thou lived in those days it is not worth while being a dunce now when there are no wits yet johnson in his life of pope seems to be much of boswell's opinion for in writing of the dunciate he says the subject itself had nothing generally interesting for whom did it concern to know that one or another scribbler was a dunce Bickerstaff observed as a peculiar circumstance that pope's fame was higher when he was alive than it was then the opposite of this Johnson maintained on april twenty ninth seventeen seventy eight and a footnote. johnson said his pastorals were poor things though the versification was fine. Footnote. It is surely sufficient for an author of sixteen to have obtained sufficient power of language and skill in meter to exhibit a series of versification which had in English poetry no precedent, nor has since had an imitation. Johnson's works. End of footnote. He told us with high satisfaction the anecdote of Pope's inquiring who was the author of his london and saying he will be soon de he observed that in dryden's poetry there were passages drawn from a profundity which pope could never reach if the flights of dryden are higher pope continues longer on the wing dryden is read with frequent astonishment and pope with perpetual delight Johnson's works, end a footnote. He repeated some fine lines on love by the former, which I have now forgotten. Footnote. Probably, says Mr. Croker, those quoted by Johnson in the life of Dryden, Ibid, end a footnote. And gave great applause to the character of Zimri, footnote, the Duke of Buckingham in Dryden's Absalom and the Kidderfell, end a footnote. Goldsmith said that Pope's character of Addison showed a deep knowledge of the human heart. Footnote. Prologue to the Satires, line 193, And of footnote. Johnson said that the description of the temple in The Morning Bride was the finest poetical passage he had ever read. Footnote. Almeria. It was a fancied noise for all is hushed, Leonora. It bore the accent of a human voice. A Maria. it was thy fear, or else some transient wind whistling through hollows of this vaulted isle will listen. Leonora, hark. A Maria, no. All is hushed and still as death. Tis dreadful. How reverend is the face of this tall pile whose ancient pillars rear their marble heads to bear aloft its arched and ponderous roof by its own weight, made steadfast and immovable, looking tranquillity. It strikes an awe and terror on my aching sight. The tombs and monumental caves of death look cold, and shoot a chillness to my trembling heart. Give me thy hand, and let me hear thy voice. Nay, quickly speak to me, and let me hear thy voice. My own affrights me with its echoes. Act Two, Scene One. In footnote, he recollected none in Shakespeare equal to it, but said Garrick, all alarmed for the god of his idolatry, we know not the extent and variety of his powers. Footnote: Swear by thy gracious self, which is the god of my idolatry, Romeo and Juliet, Act Two, Scene Two. He was a god with whom he ventured to take great liberties. Thus, on January the 10th, 1776, he wrote, I have ventured to produce Hamlet with alterations. It was the most imprudent thing I ever did in all my life. But I had sworn I would not leave the stage till I had rescued that noble play from all the rubbish of the fifth act. I have brought it forth without the gravedigger's trick and the fencing match the alterations were received with general approbation beyond my most warm expectations correspondence, end of footnote. we are to suppose there are such passages in his works shakespeare must not suffer from the badness of our memories johnson diverted by this enthusiastic jealousy went on with a greater ardour no sir congreve has nature Smiling on the tragic eagerness of Garrick, but composing himself, he added, Sir, this is not comparing Congreve on the whole with Shakespeare on the whole, but only maintaining that Congreve has one finer passage than any that can be found in Shakespeare. Sir, a man may have no more than ten guineas in the world, but he may have those ten guineas in one piece, and so may have a finer piece than a man who has ten thousand pounds. But then he has only one ten guinea-piece. What I mean is that you can show me no passage where there is simply a description of material objects without any intermixture of moral notions which produces such an effect. This comparison between Shakespeare and Congreve is mentioned perhaps oftener than any passage in Boswell, almost as often as it is mentioned it may be seen that Johnson's real opinion is misrepresented or misunderstood. A few passages from his writings will show how he regarded the two men. In the life of Congreve works, he repeats what he says here, If I were required to select from the whole mass of English poetry the most poetical paragraph, I know not what I could refer to an exclamation in The Morning Bride yet in writing of the same play he says in this play there is more bustle than sentiment the plot is busy and intricate and the events take hold of the attention but except a very few passages we are rather amused with noise and perplexed with stratagem than entertained with any true delineation of natural characters in the preface to his shakespeare published four years before this conversation he almost answered garrick by anticipation it was said of euripides that every verse was a precept and it may be said of shakespeare that from his works may be collected a system of civil and economical prudence yet his real power is not shown in the splendour of particular passages but by the progress of his fable and the tenor of his dialogue, and he that tries to recommend him by select quotations will succeed like the pedant in Heracles, who, when he offered his house to sale, carried a brick in his pocket as a specimen. Ignorant indeed is he who thinks that Johnson was insensible to Shakespeare's transcendent and unbounded genius to use the words that he himself applied to him the rambler number one hundred fifty six it may be doubtful he writes whether from all his successes more maxims of theoretical knowledge or more rules of practical prudence can be collected than he alone has given to his country works he that has read shakespeare with attention will perhaps find little new in the crowded world. Ibid. Let him that is yet unacquainted with the powers of Shakespeare, and who desires to feel the highest pleasure that the drama can give, read every play from the first scene to the last with utter negligence of all his commentators. For his fancy is once on the wing, let it not stoop at correction or explanation, Ibid. And lastly, he quotes Dryden's words, in square brackets from Dryden's Essay of Dramatic Poesy, edition of 1701, that Shakespeare was the man who, of all modern and perhaps ancient poets, had the largest and most comprehensive soul. Ibid. Mrs Piozzi records anecdotes that she forced Johnson one day in a similar humour, in square brackets, to that in which he had praised Congreve, to prefer Young's description of night to those of Shakespeare and Dryden. He ended, however, by saying, Young froths and foams and bubbles, sometimes very vigorously, but we must not compare the noise made by your tea-kettle here with the roaring of the ocean. End of footnote. Mr. Murphy mentioned Shakespeare's description of the night before the Battle of Agincourt, but it was observed it had men in it. footnote, Henry V, Act Four, prologue, end of footnote. Mr. Davies suggested the speech of Juliet, in which she figures herself awaking in the tomb of her ancestors, footnote, Romeo and Juliet, Act Four, scene Three. end of footnote. Someone mentioned the description of Dover Cliff, footnote, King Lear, Act Four, scene Six. end of footnote. Johnson. No, sir, it should be all precipice, all vacuum. The crows impede your fall. The diminished appearance of the boats and other circumstances are all very good description. But do not impress the mind at once with the horrible idea of immense height. The impression is divided. You pass on by computation from one stage of the tremendous space to another. Had the girl in the morning bride said she could not cast her shoe to the top of one of the pillars in the temple, it would not have aided the idea, but weakened it. Talking of a barrister who had a bad utterance, someone, to rouse Johnson, wickedly said that he was unfortunate in not having been taught oratory by Sheridan. Johnson. Nay, sir. If he had been taught by Sheridan... He would have cleared the room. Yarick, Sheridan has too much vanity to be a good man. We shall now see Johnson's mode of defending man taking him into his own hands and discriminating. Johnson. No, sir. There is, to be sure, in Sheridan something to reprehend and everything to laugh at. But, sir, he is not a bad man. No, sir. Were mankind to be divided into good and bad, he would stand considerably within the ranks of good. And, sir, it must be allowed that Sheridan excels in plain declamation, though he can exhibit no character. I should perhaps have suppressed this disquisition concerning a person whose merit and worth I think with respect had he not attacked johnson so outrageously in his life of swift and at the same time treated us his admirers as a set of pygmies he who has provoked the lash of wit cannot complain that he smarts from it mrs Montague, a lady distinguished for having written an essay on shakespeare being mentioned Reynolds think that essay does her honour, Johnson, yes, sir. It does her honour, but it would do nobody else honour. I have indeed not read it all, but when I take up the end of a web and find it pack-thread, I do not expect by looking further to find embroidery, So I will venture to say there is not one sentence of true criticism in her book. Garrett but sir surely it shows how much voltaire has mistaken shakespeare which nobody else has done Footnote. in spite of the gross nonsense that voltaire has written about shakespeare yet it was with justice that in a letter to horace walpole dated july the fifteenth seventeen sixty eight he said je suis le premier qui a fait connaître shakespeare au français je peux vous assurer qu'avant moi Person en France ne connaissait la poésie anglaise. Voltaire's works, footnote. Johnson, sir, nobody else has thought it worth while, And what merit is there in that? You may as well praise a schoolmaster for whipping a boy who has construed ill. No, sir, there is no real criticism in it. None showing beauty of thought as formed on the workings of the human heart the admirers of this essay footnote of whom i acknowledge myself to be one considering it as a piece of the secondary or comparative species of criticism and not of that profound species which alone dr johnson would allow to be real criticism it is besides clearly and elegantly expressed and has done effectually what it professed to do namely vindicated shakespeare from the misrepresentations of Voltaire. In considering how many young people were misled by his witty though false observations, Mrs. Montague's essay was of service to Shakespeare with a certain class of readers, and is therefore entitled to praise. Johnson, I am assured, allowed the merit which I have stated, saying, with reference to Voltaire, it is conclusive ad hominem Boswell. That this dull essay, which would not do credit to a clever schoolgirl of seventeen, should have had a fame of which the echoes have not yet quite died out, can only be fully explained by Mrs. Montague's great wealth and position in society. Contemptible as was her essay, yet saying a saying of hers about Voltaire was clever. He sent to the Academy an invective in square brackets against Shakespeare that bears all the marks of passionate dotage mrs Montague happened to be present when it was read suar one of their writers said to her je crois madame que vous êtes un peu de ce que vous venez d'entendre she replied moi monsieur fring de tout je ne suis pas amie de monsieur voltaire walpole's letters her own letters are very pompous and very poor and her wit would not seem to have flashed often for miss burney wrote of her she reasons well and harangues well but wit she has none madame D'Arblay's diary yet in this same diary we find evidence of the absurdly high estimate that was commonly formed of her mrs thrale asked me if i did not want to see mrs montague i truly said i should be the most insensible of all animals not to like to see our sex's glory that she was a very extraordinary woman we have johnson's word for it see post may the fifteenth seventeen eighty four it is impossible however to discover anything that rises above commonplace in anything that she wrote and so far as i know that she said with the exception of her one saying about voltaire johnson himself in one of his letters to mrs thrale has a laugh at her he had mentioned shakespeare nature and friendship and continues now of whom shall i proceed to speak of whom but mrs Montague? having mentioned shakespeare and nature does not the name of Montague force itself upon me such were the transitions of the ancients, which now seem abrupt, because the intermediate idea is lost to modern understandings. I wish her name had connected itself with friendship. But ah, Colin, thy hopes are in vain. Piozzi letters see post, April seventh, seventeen seventy-eight. End of footnote. The admirers of this essay may be offended at the slighting manner in which Johnson spoke of it, but let it be remembered that he gave his honest opinion, unbiased by any prejudice or any proud jealousy of a woman intruding herself into the chair of criticism. For Sir Joshua Reynolds has told me that when the essay first came out and it was not known who had written it, Johnson wondered how Sir Joshua could like it. Footnote. Reynolds is fond of her book, and I wonder at it for neither I nor Beauclerc nor Mrs. Thrale could get through it. Possles, Hebrides, end footnote. At this time Sir Joshua himself had received no information concerning the author, except being assured by one of our most eminent literati that it was clear its author did not know the Greek tragedies in the original. One day at Sir Joshua's table, when it was related that Mrs. Montague in an excess of compliment to the author of a modern tragedy had exclaimed i tremble for shakespeare johnson said when shakespeare has got blank for his rival and mrs Montague for his defender he is in a poor state indeed johnson proceeded the scotchman has taken the right method in his elements of criticism Lord Keynes is the Scotchman. End of footnote. I do not mean that he has taught us anything, but he has told us old things in a new way. Murphy. He seems to have read a great deal of French criticism, and wants to make it his own, as if he had been for years anatomizing the heart of man and peeping into every cranny of it. Goldsmith. It is easier to write, That book than to read it. Footnote. When Charles Townsend read some of Lord Kames's elements of criticism, he said, This is the work of a dull man grown whimsical. A most characteristical account of Lord Kames as a writer, Boswelliana. Hume wrote of it, Some parts of the work are ingenious and curious, but it is too abstruse and crabbed, ever to take with the public, J. H. Burden's Hume. Keynes, he said, had much provoked Voltaire, who never forgives, and never thinks, any enemy below his notice. Ibit. Voltaire thus ridicules his book. Il nous prouve, la nous avons cinq et que nous sentons moins l'impression douce faite sous nos yeux et sous nos oreilles, par le les sons, que nous ne sentons un grand coup sur la jambe, ou sur la tête. Footnote. Johnson. We have an example of true criticism in Burke's Essay on the Sublime and Beautiful, and if I recollect, there is also Dubois and Bour. Who shows all beauty to depend on truth. » Footnote. L'abbé Dubois, 1670-1742 « Tous les artistes lisent avec fruit ces réflexions sur la poésie, la peinture et la musique. C'est le livre le plus utile qu'on ait jamais écrit sur ces matières chez aucune des nations de l'Europe. » Voltaire siècle de Louis XIV Pour Ur, 1628 to 1702, Voltaire, writing a beau of Manier de bien penser sur les ouvrages d'esprit, says that he teaches young people à éviter l'enflure, l'obscurité, le rechercher et le faux. Ibid. Johnson perhaps knew him through The Spectator, number 62, where it is said that he is shown that it is impossible for any thought to be beautiful, which is not just, that the basis of all wit is truth End of footnote. there is no great merit in telling how many plays have ghosts in them, and how this ghost is better than that. You must show how terror is impressed on the human heart in the description of Night in Macbeth. The beetle and the bat detract from the general idea of darkness, inspissated gloom. Footnote, Macbeth, Act 3, Scene 2, End of Footnote. Politics being mentioned, he said, This petitioning is a new mode of distressing government and a mighty easy one. I will undertake to get petitions either against quarter guineas or half guineas with the help of a little hot wine. There must be no yielding to encourage this. The object is not important enough. We are not to blow up half a dozen palaces because one cottage is burning. In the false alarm that was published less than three months after this conversation, Johnson describes how petitions were got. The progress of a petition is well known an ejected placeman goes down to his county or his borough tells his friends of his inability to serve them and his constituents of the corruption of the government his friends readily understand that he who can get nothing would have nothing to give they agree to proclaim a meeting meat and drink are plentifully provided a crowd is easily brought together and those who think that they know the reason of their meeting undertake to tell those who know it not. Ail and clamour unite their powers. The petition is read and universally approved. Those who were sober enough to write add their names, and the rest would sign if they could. Works, volume 6, page 172. Yet, when the petitions for Dr Dodd's life were rejected, Johnson said, Surely the voice of the public, when it calls so loudly, and calls only for mercy, ought to be heard. Post June twenty-eighth, 1777. Horace Walpole, writing of the numerous petitions presented to the King this year, 1769, blames an example so inconsistent with the principles of liberty as appealing to the crown against the house of commons. Some of them prayed for a dissolution of Parliament. Memoirs of the reign of George III. Two years earlier, Lord Shelburne, when Secretary of State, had found among the subscribers to a petition for his impeachment, a friend of his, a London alderman oh i said the alderman when asked for an explanation i did sign a petition at the royal exchange which they told me was for the impeachment of a minister i always sign a petition to impeach a minister and i recollect that as soon as i had subscribed it twenty more put their names to it Parliamentary history and a footnote. the conversation then took another turn johnson It is amazing what ignorance of certain points one sometimes finds in men of eminence. A wit about town, who wrote Latin bawdy verses, asked me how it happened that England and Scotland, which were once two kingdoms, were now one. And Sir Fletcher Norton did not seem to know that there were such publications as reviews. The Ballad of Hardy Canute has no great merit, if it be really ancient. Footnote. Mr. Robert Chambers says that the author of the ballad was Elizabeth Halkett, wife of Sir Henry Wardlaw. She died about 1727. The Ballad of Hardy Canute was the first poem I ever read, and it will be the last I shall forget, Sir Walter Scott, Crocus Boswell. End of footnote. People talk of nature, but mere obvious nature may be exhibited with very little power of mind. End of section 12.